Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are finishing up our series in 1 John this morning, so if you'll find that book way back in the back of the New Testament, we're going to be in chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. And when we read those verses, you're going to see the phrase, we know, multiple times. And so that's my title this morning, we know. Knowledge is a powerful thing. Of course, that is when it is used correctly. And a lack of knowledge can be very disconcerting. We know that there are some people who think that they know it all. We call them know-it-alls. And they are very quick to tell you how much they know on just about any subject that you might be interested in. And we know that they don't know nearly as much as they think they do. Other times, we admit that we don't know. I mean, how many times do we say that in a given week? I don't know. And we look around at what's going on in our world today, and the problems are complex, the situations are difficult. We watch the television, and the reporters tell us what they think they know, and then we often go online and tell everybody else what the solution is. But the truth is, more often than not, because these situations are complex, we really don't know. We don't know how to solve all of the problems of social justice and racism and violence. People think they know, but if they really knew, we would have solved it by now. And so many times we have to simply say, I don't know. I mean, we've seen it during this pandemic. The lack of knowledge has caused us great uncertainty and in many cases, fear. I mean, we've heard differing reports throughout these months. How is this virus transmitted? Where can you get it? What's the best means to make sure that we don't get it? What are the best methods to help us prevent ourselves from getting it? And the stories change over time. And so we have to say sometimes I simply don't know. But John is going to tell us some things that we do know. And these things are of vital importance not to combat a pandemic, but in order to live the Christian life. Because when there is uncertainty, when as a Christian we say, I don't know, that leads to confusion and fear. But where there is knowledge, where we can stake a, a stake, put a stake down and say, this is what we know about our relationship with Christ, that brings confidence and assurance. And that's what John's been trying to give us throughout this letter. He's been trying to tell us who we are in Christ so that we're not led astray by others and so that we can have the confidence and assurance to faithfully walk with him. And so we're bringing this letter to a conclusion this morning, and in bringing it to a conclusion, John is going to do what I sometimes do at the end of my sermon, and that is he's going to summarize just a little bit. In other words, he's going to tell us once again some of his most important points because he wants to leave them with us. These are the things that he wants to emphasize. These are the things that we know are of utmost importance. 
And when we know them, we can have confidence and assurance. So look with me at at this text, and as we read it, keep in mind that phrase, we know. See how many times you see it. 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right, so you saw that phrase numerous times. I didn't even count them up, so I don't know how many times it's there, but it is there repeatedly, and that is the emphasis this morning. What is it that we know as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, number one, we know eternal life. You see that in verse 13, and verse 13 is the theme verse of this entire letter. We looked at it week one many months ago when we began this study, and we said this is the main reason. There are other reasons, but this is the main reason why John is writing this letter. And we looked at it last week in looking ahead just a little bit, but now we've finally gotten to the actual verse where John tells us his reason. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you know the gospel of John, you know that he does something very similar there. He waits until one of the last few chapters, just like he does here, to tell us why he wrote the gospel. And this is what he says in his gospel. He says, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says he wrote the gospel for an evangelistic reason. That is, he he recorded the signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus for a specific purpose, so that you might know that he is the Christ, and in knowing that, that you might believe. So that's an evangelistic emphasis. But here in 1 John, the emphasis is not evangelism. Here, he is writing to believers. Look again at verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to people who already believe this is not evangelistic, but he's doing so so that they might have assurance of their faith in Christ. So in the gospel, his purpose is salvation. In the epistle, his purpose is the assurance of that salvation. And that is why throughout this letter, we've taken various tests 
Not that we might doubt our salvation, but he's given us these tests or these evidences of genuine salvation so that we would know that we do, in fact, know Jesus Christ and therefore have assurance. So when you put these two books together, John wants his readers to hear the good news, the gospel. He wants them to believe the gospel and then to live it out, as we've seen in this epistle, so that we can have certainty. Because certain knowledge of eternal life is essential for actually living in confidence. Now, you know, if you ever try to share the gospel with someone and you ask them the question, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? You put it in some sort of phrase, but it's something like that. More times than not, the answer is, I hope so. Most people will say, I hope so. They will not say, I know so, but they will say, I hope so. And the reason they say they hope so is because in some way, they are living their lives in a works-oriented salvation. That is, they hope at the end of life that they've done enough good things to counteract their bad things so that when God weighs in the balance their life, it tips the scale in the favor of the good, and therefore, they're going to go to heaven. And that is why they say, I hope so. I don't really know. But I hope when it's all said and done that I've done enough good things. That is the way the majority of people think about religion. And because of that, they have no certainty. You can't have certainty in a work salvation emphasis. Because I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know how many good things I'm going to do in the future or how many bad things I'm going to do. So if you are living life in a works salvation basis, you are never going to have certainty because we don't know what the future holds. But John doesn't say that I'm writing these things so that you can hope that you have eternal life. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know, so that you can have certainty that you do indeed possess eternal life. Well, how can anybody say that? In fact, that's what people will say to you when you say, no, I'm not asking if you hope so. I'm asking if you know. They'll say, well, nobody can really know. There's no way anybody can really have certainty. Well, that's not what John says. John says we can have certainty because it's not a work salvation emphasis. It is the gospel of grace. And when we know for certain that we have eternal life, it gives us confidence for the journey. You know, one of my favorite things about uh, the phones that we now have is the maps. You know, that you can plug in an address and you can know for certainty. Now, I know occasionally it's wrong, but by and large, it's right. And so you can know for certain that you're going to get where you're going because that phone's going to talk to you every step of the way. In two miles, take a right. And then when you get closer, it's going to remind you again. And then when you're right on it, it's going to say, take a right. You know, before we had all of this technology, you had the big map in the car, you know, the person sitting in the passenger seat's got this big map out, or you're having to stop. We men never did this, but the wives kept telling us to, you know, you stop at a convenience store and you say, do you know where so-and-so is? And then they, they would give you directions like, yeah, you go north and then you take a ride, or, or when you see that big tree, you turn left. And we never had any certainty. We didn't know if we were going to get where we were going because the directions were not all that good, and we didn't have confidence that we were actually going to get there. But now we do, not just with our phones, but in a much more significant way. We know for certain that we have eternal life, and that gives us the confidence to faithfully follow Christ. 
So number one, we know eternal life. These things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verses 14 through 16, we know answered prayer. Now, this might be a hard one for you. This might be one of the most difficult ones. Because while we know that the Bible speaks often about prayer, we know that prayers are recorded in the Bible. We know that answered prayers are recorded in the Bible. We know that there are examples of people praying in the Bible. We know that Jesus not only modeled prayer for us, but commanded us to pray. We don't doubt any of those things. We know Scripture is full of prayer. But our own lives sometimes teach a different story. And because our own prayer lives are often not very good, or more specifically, because we have unanswered prayer in our prayer life, some of us have just quit. We've got uh, discouraged. We've said, well, I prayed for that for a long time, and God never answered, so what's the use? And we've quit praying. Or we don't have any confidence that God is going to hear and answer our prayers because of those past experience. And yet, then we come to this text, and John says we can know that he hears us and that he answers us. In fact, there's two we knows in the section on prayer. We know that he hears us, and the implication in hearing is not just that he hears audibly, but he's taking account of what we're saying, like he's really listening. And then he goes on to say, and we know that he hears us. We know that he's going to answer our prayers. Therefore, a child of God can have confidence in knowing that God desires and delights in hearing our prayers and answering them. That tells us not only that we can have confidence before him, but we can have the privilege of contact with him. I mean, he invites us into his presence through the avenue of prayer. And again, he's not just hearing, he's hearing and listening and then answering, meaning that he is favorably disposed toward us. And he makes a commitment to us. He promises to answer. There is, of course, the stipulation here that it must be according to his will. This is now the second time that John has talked about prayer. The second time he's talked about having confidence in prayer. The first time, there were two stipulations. There was that we had to be faithfully following, we had to be obedient, and uh, we had to, to, to pray, of course. But here he adds another thing. Here he adds that our prayer must be according to his will. We have to be obedient to his commands. We have to do what is pleasing toward him. That's what he said in chapter 2. But now he says, if you want to have answered prayer, these prayers must be in accordance with the will of God. Now, there are other stipulations elsewhere, but these are the ones that John brings up in this particular letter. So how can we know if our prayers meet this criteria? Again, that's another struggle for us. Well, if you just tell me what the will of God is, then I could pray in accordance with that, and then I could know that I'm going to get my prayers answered. And that's one of the greatest questions of Christianity. What is the will of God? And we struggle with that. So when John says God will answer our prayers, we can know that we have answered prayers when they are in accordance with the will of God, we say, okay, what's the will of God? Well, let me give you four questions that you can ask yourself of your own prayer life that will help you to try to determine whether or not your prayers are in accordance with the will of God. Number one, 
does your prayer agree with Scripture? That is, is what you're praying for in agreement with what God has already revealed to us in the Bible? You say, well, that's a no-brainer, and it is. But you'd be surprised at how many people are praying things that are clearly spoken about in the Bible. You say, well, should I leave my family so that I can be happy? I mean, doesn't God want me happy? So God, do you want me to leave my family so that I can be happy? Well, Scripture already talks about that. I mean, I already know the answer to that. Some of our young people will say, well, you know, I'm dating this person and they're not a believer and I'm not sure, should I date this person or not? They, they don't care about God. They don't go to church. I just want the will of God. Should I be dating this person? I can already answer that for you because Scripture speaks specifically about it. So when Scripture speaks specifically about an issue, you don't have to waffle with, is this the will of God or not? Because the Bible talks about it. Now, those are the easier ones. And of course, you have to know that, right? You see, a lot of people are praying prayers that are clearly not in accordance with God's will because they don't know what the Bible says. So you got to know what the Bible says, but the first question to ask is, is what I'm praying in agreement with the Word of God? The second question I'll encourage you to ask, again, to determine if your prayers are in accordance with the will of God. Question number two, does it promote God's glory? We've said before numerous times that we exist to bring glory to God. And that is our main goal in life. Therefore, our prayer life should have that same end. My prayer life and yours should be such that it brings glory to God. It's not about getting everything I want. It's not about bending God's ear. It's not about coercing him into getting the things I desire. It is instead about me and you living our lives to the glory of God. So is what I'm praying, if God answers this, is it going to bring glory to God? Every true prayer in the will of God ultimately has this as its end. Thy will be done. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Not my will, but your will. And if it is the will of God, then it's going to bring glory to him. A similar question, though a little bit different, is number three, does it advance God's kingdom? Again, this is not about my kingdom. This is not about me getting my selfish desires. This is about God using me and you to advance his kingdom. So if God were to answer this prayer, is it somehow going to advance his kingdom here on earth? And then the last question, does it coincide with God's character? In other words, if whatever it is you're asking... Is this something in concert with who God is? Now, you remember in life group last time, actually the last two times, we talked about the attributes of God. We went through one book that was talking about the incommunicable attributes, that is, those attributes of God that we do not share. And then we talked about the communicable attributes, those attributes of God that we do share in some way. So are the things that I'm asking for do they coincide with what I know to be the character and nature of God? So if you'll take those four questions and you'll try to apply them to whatever it is you're asking, I'm not saying you'll know perfectly, but I am saying you'll have a better idea of what the will of God is for your particular situation that you're praying about. I mean, we have to admit that sometimes we just don't know. I mean, there are situations and circumstances where we don't know the will of God. 
And so in those circumstances, we simply pray, God, I want your will. I'm not sure what it is. I'm praying this. If it is your will, I I desire for you to bring it and give it to me. But if it's not, then I certainly understand. Ultimately, I want your will to be done. And that is not just a phrase we tack on to the end of our prayers where we say, well, according to your will, that's something we genuinely desire. So there are times when we don't know, but there's a lot of times where we can know. So you say, well, well, how can I have greater answers in my prayer life? That's a simple question. Two things. Number one, pray more often, right? I mean, if we pray more often, we're going to have more answers. So number one, pray more often. And number two, pray in accordance with God's will. Because as his children, we know, John says, we know he hears us and we know he answers our prayers. Now, there's one more element I want to mention here, and I realize we're camping out in this particular section because some of the others are repeats of what we've talked about before, and this one not so much. And so I know we're spending a lot of time on this second point, and I promise we won't on the others. Um, As I've said, prayer is not primarily about getting what we want, and that's why John goes on in verses 16 and 17 to emphasize our responsibility in praying for others. We need to be conscious of the necessity of intercessory prayer. That is not just my desires and my wants. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. Occasionally, somebody will ask me with that. Is it selfish of me to pray for me? No, absolutely not. But your prayers need to include what we call intercessory prayers. That is prayer on behalf of other people. And John specifically says here, if you see someone else, if you see a believer slipping into sin, then you and I have a responsibility to pray for them, not to gossip about them, not to post about them, but we have a responsibility to pray for them. And wouldn't the world be a much better place if all of us as believers did more praying than we did posting? There's my complaint about social media again. I keep bringing that up. But may we be committed more to prayer than we are to posting. Now, John talks here, and this is a little bit confusing. He talks about a sin that leads to death, and then there's a sin that does not lead to death. This is, again, one of the most troubling passages in this letter. We, we looked at one of those last week. And now here's another one. And I've said all along that, that John is a fairly easy letter to understand, but not here in this case. And this is another instance where we have to believe that the initial audience knew exactly what he was talking about, which is why John doesn't expound upon it, and some of that has been lost to us. So what in the world does all this mean? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he asks and God gives him life, but then there are sins that that do lead to death. So what is John talking about? Well, there's multiple questions that need to be answered. Number one, when he talks about brothers... Does that confine it to a Christian? If anyone sees his brother, meaning a fellow believer, and I think that is what it means, but at times we use that word to be in a more general, that is, anybody. If it does refer to brothers, that is, those in Christ, can a believer commit a sin that does lead to death? And the biggest question of all is, what in the world is this sin that leads to death? Commentators are at odds on this. In fact, if you read conservative commentaries, they're going to disagree. There are at least four 
major explanations to what this means, four main views. The first takes it to mean physical death. That is, there, there are sins that can potentially lead to our physical death. And in those cases, God is not going to intervene. We actually see examples of this in Scripture, right? Go back to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, you, you know their names because you're familiar with what happened to them. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead in the church. And we are grateful that that's not the norm. There are other examples. Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, actually says that there are some who are asleep, which is a euphemism for death. There are some who have died because they did not take the Lord's Supper seriously. And so there are instances in the Bible where people die physically because of some sin they have committed. But I don't think that's what John's dealing with here. I think he's dealing with spiritual issues, not physical ones. So the second main view is that this is a a reference to a specific sin. What that specific sin is, it's still debatable. We divide them up if we want to into sins that are inadvertent or sins that are deliberate. Or if you have a Catholic background, you know there are mortal sins and venial sins, mortal sins being the deadly ones and venial sins which are not. And so some divide them up in that manner. A third interpretation uh, equates this text with the passage in the Gospels about the unpardonable sin. And we looked at that when we went through the Gospel of Mark. That sin of denying the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus Christ. And we said last week that one of the major roles of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. And if we deny that witness, then there is no means of salvation because Christ is the only one who can save. And so if you deny the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning who Jesus is, then there is no means of salvation. And that is why it is called the unpardonable sin. A fourth view or interpretation is very similar to that, but it speaks of the total rejection of the gospel or what we might call apostasy. And this is the one I think, and again, we don't need to be real adamant here because there are good people who hold any of these four views. But I think in context, that's what John's referring to. Because that's what he's been dealing with throughout this entire letter. You remember that there, are, there have been some who've left the church, and they have not only left, but they're trying to pull others with them, and they are falsely teaching some things about Jesus, denying that he came in the flesh in some manner, and therefore denying the atonement. We could debate whether or not they were genuinely saved or not. I think John makes it very clear that they were not. They went out from us because they were not of us. And so I think this is a reference to those who have left, the cessationists, those who have left the church and are teaching false theology. They have now committed a sin unto death. But what I want you to understand is not necessarily those four interpretations and be adamant about which one you hold. Because that's not the main focus of these verses. The main focus of these verses is that we know answered prayer. And that includes our responsibility of intercessory prayer for brothers and sisters in Christ, along with those who are lost. So let's not get hung up into what John's referring to. Let's let's look at the main thing. And the main thing is we are to pray for others. That's our Christian responsibility. And that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ who we might see going into sin. And it certainly includes uh, others. It's not what John's dealing with here. 
but it certainly includes the world and all that we see going around us. But the believer has no reason to worry about committing a sin that leads to death because we have the atonement of Christ and we have Christ as our advocate. Christ atoned for our sins on the cross and he advocates for us now in heaven. So whatever else these verses teach, they do not teach that a believer can commit a sin that leads to death. All right, we know that we have eternal life. We know answered prayer. And thirdly, verse 18, we know righteousness. Now, again, we've dealt with this before. John here is talking about the fact that believers do not continue in sin. Therefore, I've turned it around and I've said, we know righteousness. I know that sounds rather arrogant, but that's not the way I mean it. I do not mean that we're perfect. John is not saying that believers, if they're genuine, are never going to commit sin. He's talking about the habit of our lifestyle. And again, we've looked at this in weeks previous, so I'm not going to belabor it this morning. But the reason we don't habitually sin is that we are kept by God. So a lifestyle of sin and a new nature in Christ are incompatible. That is, when we are born again, given a new nature, that is incompatible with ongoing practicing a lifestyle of sin. Therefore, we know righteous living. Not because we're perfect, but because we have a position in Christ. I'm talking here about a positional righteousness, who we are in Christ, that leads then to a practical righteousness. All right, number four. I told you I wouldn't be long on that one. Number four, we know acceptance, verse 19. We know that we are from God while the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It is a wonderful assurance to know that we belong. We've all had the experience of, of feeling out of place, being somewhere that we don't belong. Maybe it was with another family and we're the only ones that's not part of that family. Or maybe it's back in high school when we went to a dance and nobody would dance with us. We just stood there against the wall. Or maybe it was 30 years later at a high school reunion and you experienced the same thing. Nobody would talk to you. We've all had those experiences of being uncomfortable in a place and around people where we feel left out, where we feel not accepted. But no believer should have that feeling when it comes to God because we have the assurance that we are accepted with God and we can live daily in that assurance. We know we are of God and therefore we are accepted by him. Again, those who have a work salvation mentality can never say that. They can never come to the place where they know they're accepted. But we who believe in a gospel of grace can have that assurance because God has adopted us into, our, into his family. And that is not based on our prior performance. It is based on his grace. And it's not based on our future performance. That is, if it's not based on our prior performance, then keeping is not based on our future performance, and therefore we can have acceptance. Jesus attained our salvation on the cross, and Jesus maintains our salvation as he sits at the right hand of the Father. So we have, or we know, acceptance. Lastly, verse 20, we know the Son. And this is the pivotal one, because if you don't know the Son, 
then you're not going to know eternal life. You're not going to know answered prayer. You're not going to know righteousness nor acceptance in God's family. But if you know the Son, then you will also know all of those things. And that's what John has been teaching us in this letter. If you know the Son, you have it all. Verse 20 says, we know His appearance. This is another, this is another jab at those who've left the church and said Jesus didn't really come the way you think He came. John says, oh no, we know He came. And we know what he did when he came. He gave us the gift of salvation. And that salvation is through the Son. He has given us the understanding that we might come to know him. You see, you and I are not believers because we were somehow religiously bent in that direction. You and I are not believers because we're smarter or wiser than someone else. We are believers because God in Christ has given us the gift of opening up our eyes and our heart that we might see the gospel for the true nature that it is and that Jesus is indeed the Son and we have responded in faith. We've been given the gift of salvation through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, drawing us to God the Father. And so when you and I are tempted to complain about our lot in life, When we are tempted to wonder about God's concern and love for us, we need to be reminded of this gift. He has given us, verse 20, understanding so that we may know him who is true. So we know the Son as a gift from God, and we know the Son as the truth. And then the last verse, it seems a little bit out of character here, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, that just seems strange to us because John hasn't mentioned idols this entire letter. That word has never come up, but now it does. And it's the very last thing he says. So what is he talking about? We know that in the Old Testament, idols were figurines or statues that they would place in their homes and, and worship. They were false gods. And we are often tempted to say, well, I don't have those in my home, so idolatry is really not an issue with me. But idolatry is not just a statue. Idolatry, rightly understood, an idol, is anything or anyone that we place in a higher priority than we do our relationship with God. So an idol can be anything. An idol can be a good thing. But it's a good thing that we've started to worship, and therefore it's become a greater priority than God is, and therefore that is the very definition of idolatry. So what does John mean when he closes here by saying, keep yourselves from idols? Again, I think in context, this is another jab at the false teachers. That is, they are false uh, teaching. They are teaching idolatry. And this is a last reminder. Do not fall prey to that false teaching. It's nothing but idolatry. Therefore, stay away from it. Now, knowledge, as we've said, breeds confidence and assurance. If you think back to the days when you were a student, by and large, there's two different kinds of students that show up in class on the day of a test. The first student is the one who's ready. You know, they've prepared, they've studied. And they come in and they sit down at their desk, they've got their pen or pencil in their hand, they're not thumbing through a book, they're not sweating, they're very calm, They're ready for the test because they have prepared, and so they have confidence and assurance. And those of us who are not like them hate those kind of people because the rest of us come into class, and we know we're not ready. We know we've not prepared or studied nearly enough. 
And so we're taking every last second we can. We're flipping through the book, trying to find one more answer that might help us. We're talking to the person next to us saying, hey, what's this all about? I'm afraid it's on the test and I don't understand it. And so we're asking them for help and we're sweating and we're hoping that somehow the teacher doesn't show up because we know we're not ready for the test. There's no confidence. John is talking to us in the Christian life and saying we can have confidence. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be worried. We don't need to be filled with doubt. We can have assurance and confidence. Why? Because we know the Son. And because we know the Son, we know we have eternal life. We know God hears and answers our prayers. We know all of these things that we've talked about this morning resulting in the fact that we can have confidence to live a life of victory in Jesus Christ. That's where we started, right? We sang victory in Jesus. Well, how can we have the confidence and the assurance to live in victory? It's because we know all of the things we've talked about this morning. And because we know them, we don't walk around arrogantly, but we do walk around confidently because we know Christ. I pray that's true of you. Let me pray, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Father, we do thank you for giving us the gift of your Son, drawing us unto yourself through your Spirit, so that we now know Jesus. And because we know Jesus, we know that we have eternal life. We don't have to worry about that. I know we doubt from time to time, but we don't have to doubt because we know we have eternal life through your Son. And therefore, we can have assurance and confidence to walk faithfully with you, that we might overcome even as you have, and that indeed we might have victory in Jesus. We thank you for all of these things that John has taught us in this little letter so that we can have the assurance of our salvation. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.